Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. We haven't really talked to him about ten years, but that's that no, happens though. That, no, nonetheless, nothing like a like nothing like an exorcism to bring you together. Right, nothing like an exorcism to bring three men together. Well, 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 Jonathan. Another hello, Slava. Another episode of SideQuest. Hello, adventurers. Welcome back, SideQuesters. Questers, adventurers is good. I think adventurers. adventurers work. Hello, yeah. little adventurers. We today we dive into demons and exorcisms and welcome to Satan Quest. I mean, side quest. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Kidding. Lord help us. Indeed. Hallowed be thy name. No, we, we are reverent, <laughs> and especially to demons. <laughs> oh boy! I think this episode or two, three, if we get your buddy on for the guest episode is going to be fun because I've read this book numerous times. I watched the book numerous times. I'm a careful purveyor, purveyor, purveyor. I'm a careful yeah. purveyor of horror. What does that mean? What is a careful purveyor? I think one can enjoy learning about the supernatural, learning about the other side of the veil, but one has to know his place and understand that it's far outside a human's capability to deal with it in a way that you can walk away from it unscathed. So is reading The Exorcist playing with the cult or playing with the other side? No, it's reading about other people who who have done it. <laughs> so I think it's interesting, and it gets conversations like the ones we're going to have on this podcast going, but just like Reagan's, the little girl, you'll, you'll describe the situation in a second here, just like Reagan's playing with you know, Captain Howdy led to her being possessed. There's certain things that humans should just avoid. And the we'll get into this too, like the teachings of the church, in this case, the Catholic church specifically, which I've do- dove into, are pretty clear on how humans should engage with things that are paranormal, supernatural. But more on that in a little bit here. What did you learn this week, Jonathan? Uh, That's not demon-related. Yeah, well, that makes one of us. I... I have a small stock portfolio, one of the stocks tanked, and so I started doing some more reading on how to better engage with the stock market and different classifications of uh, dividend stocks that I'm a part of. So, interesting stuff, but losing six grand in a day is not a fun time. Whoa. Okay. Well, I had a stock that tanked, and I lost $17 because it was like, you know, stupid penny stocks that I was playing around with. It's my majority position. Compared for my whole portfolio, it's it's mm. the the largest position that I have because it paid the best stock. But the reason it tanked is because they changed the stock or the the dividend paid the the largest dividend, and so then that affects the the price of the stock. So, but it's fine. I mean, the market's risky. That's what you do. So yeah, it is it's not it is. worthless. The stock's not worthless, and they're not paying no dividend now. They're just paying a smaller dividend. So it just is what it is. And it happened kind of between trading days. So oh. it's one of those things that it's like, 
the next day that the, the, the market opens up, it's like the price has already been deflated. Um, tanked isn't the right way to say it. It's deflated. That's that's yeah. what I, I'd say it. Yeah. One of the one of the tank one of the tanks. Yep, one of the tanks. One of the stocks I have, because I have the Robinhood app, and I'm just getting into it. So I put five hundred dollars into the market. I'm just playing around with the, the, the cheapest stocks I could find, but I kind of read up about the companies and people who are smarter than me are saying this is going to go up. So I'm playing with some of them. Mm-hmm. And one of them went from like $2 a stock to like 17 cents a stock. Oh man. Just because it went down doesn't mean you should buy it. But I bought like a couple of hundred stocks of this thing, right? And uh, I'm like, let's just see where it goes. Because listen, it's 500 bucks that I'm playing around with. I'm trying to like just figure it out on my own. Kind of on my own. And then the next day, they split the stock. <laughs> so I had no longer had this. I was like, well, bleep you guys. Tell us what splitting the stock is real quick for the audience. A stock split is when a company divides and increases the number of stock shares available to buy and sell on the exchange. So What does that do it, to the price? It lowers it. That's right. <laughs> it does. It doesn't weaken it, but it lowers the price. Right, because you're is, expanding the pie. Right. Yeah, so. so they did this with Tesla's stock, and originally some of the new traders were like, oh my god, this is great, I'm gonna, for every stock I own in Tesla, they're gonna give me more, and then the people were like, the the experienced traders were like, clearly you're an idiot, because yeah, it's 3000 per stock right now, but they're gonna split it, they're gonna give you 3 to 1, or whatever it was, so now each stock's gonna be worth 1000 and it's like, yeah, theoretically, you could make more money if each individual stock goes up, which is fine, but like oftentimes a stock split is not super great because they are diluting the the share pool. So yeah. yes, sir. What did you learn this week, Slava, now that we've talked numbers and oh, my losses? I've learned numbers too. Did you know, Jonathan, that there are four types of possession according to the Catholic Church? I did not. Yeah. So this book, uh well not this book, this podcast, this episode sent me searching for Sent me into uh, the dark underworld. The reason I went down this road, Jonathan, was because Blatty was a devout Catholic, and when he was doing his research about exorcisms, he got some inspiration for Father Karras's topics that he talks about from real-life exorcisms in the 1600s, and Reagan and the mom and this being around the school is based on a real exorcism that happened in Maryland, near Catholic University in 1949 and involved a boy. So I'm like, well, let's see how well Blatty knows his exorcism, right? How well he represented the Catholic Church. As a devout Catholic, how well he represented it. And he did it really well. Again, more on that later. But what I learned specifically about possession is that there are, depending on how you slice it, there's four or five, but technically... Four, and some priests even say three because they combine a couple of them into one category. So there is the category, according to one priest, of what would be pre, pre-possession, temptation. It's when a demon finds a, a weak human and exploits their sins and their weaknesses. Mm-hmm. That later opens the door for the demon to actually possess or oppress. According to the other priests I listened to, they kind of kept it to around three or four, mostly these three. It starts with oppression, and that's where you get physical or mental attacks on the person. And it's external and internal struggles 
that burden and abuse the person's body, mind, and spirit. The next level is called obsession, and it is an attack on the mind that's a level above oppression where the intellect is attacked so much that the person can't get rid of these thoughts. When you're being oppressed, it could happen once and it could leave you. It could happen a couple of times here and there. It could be intermittent. But with obsession, these thoughts, these attacks in the mind last until you're freed from it by an exorcism or by participating in the sacraments. And finally, there's the possession or infestation. And possession is exactly what we see in The Exorcist, where Reagan is taken over by an entity. And infestation is when the demon overtakes a geographical place or an animal. So possession, as we see in The Exorcist, the, the caveat that I learned, is like 5% of all exorcism. A lot of them are a lot more tamer than that. Mm-hmm. But once in a while, and I, I, this is why Blatty did it and why Blatty's movie got made, once in a while it goes to the level of possession that we see in the book and the movie. So I learned about possession this week, Jonathan. <laughs> oh, talk about that around the water cooler. You guys? I tried. <laughs> I tried. It, it really emptied the room. And then Reagan takes the crucifix and... Puts it in the water cooler. Nope. That's not what she called it. Anyway, before we dive in, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform wherever you like to listen to podcasts. So, summary of The Exorcist. This is the story of an actress who enjoys dinner parties, psychics, and priests. Her daughter is a lonely girl who plays with a Ouija board and encounters an invisible friend named Captain Howdy. Interestingly enough, her father's name is Howard. So, you know, something to start with. Sometime after Reagan starts using the Ouija board, she starts acting really weird. So Chris takes her to doctors and psychiatrists, but she has an aversion to the medical folks for some reason that is never really explained, but Slava can correct me on that later. They can't find a solution. No solutions for Reagan. And then Reagan takes a dive off the deep end and gets heaps worse. And her mother is at a loss and seeks to get an exorcism from a priest that she knew. However, the priest is having issues of faith himself. And then the story continues where one of Chris's friends, who is a director, because she's an actress, ends up dead on her doorstep, and now a detective gets involved. So we've got a priest who doesn't really have faith, a detective who's trying to investigate a murder but also Chris doesn't want him to know that her daughter's possessed by a demon because it seems weird because Chris doesn't believe in a spirit realm. And we have a few other characters. We have Carl. We have Willie. Shelby? What's the what's the other? Sharon. Sharon. And uh, a book about witchcraft and a few other priests. But uh, yeah, an exorcism takes place after the priest, Karis, who is having his faith issues, does everything he can to disprove that a possession is currently going on because the catholic church which slava will get into in a bit um has a regimented criteria on determining whether or not an exorcism really is going to take place which is fair i like a good system and then the ending is a little strange where karis invites the demon to possess him instead and throws himself out of a window so the same window that director dennings gets thrown out of the window right Right. So that's the summary of the book. It's quite interesting. It's certainly crude in a few places because it's an exorcism and there's a demon possessing a young 12-year-old girl. So certainly warning to the readers, 
if you're squeamish or don't enjoy profanity and blasphemy. I that's not even the worst part of it. Um, no, it's the it's the self harm, the self harm with the crucifix and the blood and the and the yeah. Anyway, so all all bets are off. What is the sign that they put before hell in, in Dante's Inferno? Um, abandon hope, all ye who <laughs> cross beyond Enter. this point. Yeah. So, and I'll hope who turn on the exorcist and audible in the car. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, when your friends get in, it's a whole thing. Anyway, I don't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> so, Slava, why don't you dive into some of the background here of the book? Yes. So, I'm going to start with the author, and I have a lot of notes on him, but maybe I'll keep it to the top level notes. And then as we go through the book, I have some notes in my journal here, and I'll bring them up as and if necessary. So William Peter Blatty, born in 1928, died in 2017. He was an American writer, director, and producer, best known for The Exorcist in 1971 and the screenplay 1973. Now there's two screenplays and three versions of the movie. I think the best version is the one you haven't seen on Amazon Prime or the director's cut because although I think movies and books and even the best adaptation, produce two separate products, if you will. Yeah. I, I think after reading everything about Blady and reading his book about how he wrote The Exorcist, so the second version of the script and the director's cut movie is what I'll be referencing because it's Blady's wish to tell a story a particular way. And yes, the movie's a separate product, but I think it's just fair to... Uh, author's uh, intent. Author's intent, yeah. Sometimes I wouldn't care. Like my position on Kubrick and King with The Shining, it's a completely separate thing. Enjoy each product separately. But here, the director was an agnostic. And from what I read, he was a bit of an ass. The agnostic part didn't make him an ass, but him just being an ass made him an ass. And he cut out a couple of things out of the movie because he wanted, and I'm, this is where it gets a little uh, hairy, and I don't know if this is true, but he cut out a couple of parts of the script that Blady wrote, which is true. Now, his reasons, I can only guess, and this is based on stuff I found online, so you know how that goes, that he didn't want a good ending. He wanted ambiguous. He wanted the viewer to walk away not knowing who won, the demon or the priest, where Blady wanted to leave some hope in the ending of the movie. So I'm going to go with Blady's because I think it's still dark, it's crass. It's a horrific story. But at the end, even though it's a good ending, what Blatty did well is still keep it a little ominous. But it wasn't like bereft of hope. So how this book happened. That's enough about Blady. How this book happened. You know what? It's not enough about Blady. Two interesting things. He went to the United States Air Force. And in the Air Force, he did what people do in the Air Force. He got out joined what was called the United States Information Agency, working as an editor in Lebanon, and discovered that he was a good writer and began submitting articles. And then he wrote comic books and screenplays and made money out of that. And then he's like, hey, you know what? I want to write a book about demon possession. And so here we are. The book is based on a real-life exorcism by a Jesuit priest called Father Williams Bodron from St. Louis University. That's where he taught. But the exorcism was of a young boy in Cottage City, Maryland, three miles from Catholic University. All this happening in 1949 in similar fashion in a house rented by a family next to the university. 
yada, yada, yada. Priest involved. A lot of weird things happen. Beds levitating. The boy possessing language. Uh, possessing the ability to speak languages that he didn't know. Cursing the priests up and down. Speaking all sorts of blasphemies. It was a real event that that happened. And even doctors present couldn't explain what was going on. So this is not just a fanciful story told by really creative Catholics. And this is the inspiration for the book. The parts of the book that describe bad exorcisms and where Karis talks about mumbo-jumbo, like, Miss McNeil, don't put stock in it because nobody knows what a good exorcism is, not even the Catholic Church. That's why we stopped doing them. When he and Chris talk and when he and Kinderman talk, he references a couple possessions in past years, like past 100, 300 years, and they're called allowed in possessions. And they happen in Normandy, and then they happened in, in Louvier. And these things were an absolute spectacle. People were going nuts because they were spectating the exorcism. The victims of the possession, alleged possession, were going nuts. One of the priests had a cardiac arrest after going for day straight. And there were two different events that happened. And they're like a couple of years apart. Well, about 11 years apart. It was a complete clown show in both places. People were killed. People were put in jail for life. He said, director of a nunnery was dug up and his bones were burned because the nuns were saying he and Satan were visiting them at night, possessing them and telling them to do blasphemous things and commit heresy. Complete nonsense. It was probably a psychotic case, uh, a case of psychosis in both. They attributed it to the paranormal. Nobody checked up and it all went to hell. So those are the two events for Blatty that he used to give Kara's doubt about the exorcism. All that to say is Blatty did his homework. And as we talk about the book, I'm going to weave in some of the more stuff I learned by listening to what I think is about seven, six or seven hours of priests lecturing on exorcism and how the Catholic Church views and does them now. But yeah, I got to give it to Blatty. He did his homework. Besides that, I love the creepiness level of the book. I think Blady weaves a story together well. You get a sense, you get a good sense for the people. I understand what Chris is going through. I understand what Kinderman is trying to do as a cop. I understand how Karis feels, even though I have to work at figuring some things out. Spoiler alert, it takes you a while, even in the movie, to figure out that Reagan is writing the blasphemies to the church, taking a big old dump on the altar in the chapel, defacing the Virgin Mary statue, murdering Dennings, and doing all sorts of other horrific stuff. It takes a little bit of effort on the viewer for the movie and the reader to piece certain things together. And normally I'd agree with you, Jonathan, and like, tell me what I need to know in the book. Don't make me guess. But the way Blatty weaves it together, it's almost a reward when you figure it out. Yeah, the story was interesting. I didn't... I, I told you, I, I shot Slava a text during um, section one, where I was like, I... The book is called The Exorcist, and, like, I mean, I see that it's building up, but it's pretty slow to start. And so then it's like, okay, well, when is this going to get going? And then it was three chapters into section two, where it's like, okay, now it's now it's going. But it, it was a little slow on the front end, which I think I understand at this point, because it's like he wanted to explain the characters and the situation and the context. If you If you don't have that and you just dive into, like, this girl's possessed and unpacking it on the back end. I think would have been more difficult. Right. And so two points to to your comment. 
The Exorcist is actually Marin, who we don't meet until part three. So it's even a slower uptake, right? And I think what Blatty wanted to do, based on some interviews I watched with him, is he wanted to explore what the events that he described in his book, what such events would have on a person who doesn't believe in a supernatural. And that's where Chris comes in. Then you have Karis, who is struggling with his faith. Then you have Marin, the true believer, and how they how they all interact with the demon. And how, at some point, even the atheist has more faith than Father yeah. Karis. And then, like, this, the silly... And I mean, like, everybody has their own demons, no pun intended, to fight, or maybe intended. But, like, Karis is worried about his mom dying alone because he chose a profession where he doesn't have any money. He took a vow of chastity and poverty. And, he, and then he's processing his faith through his own stuff. So he's actually functioning almost like an atheist. Chris, as an atheist, is functioning more like a believer, going like, hey, I need to save my daughter. This is obviously out of the ordinary. If an exorcism or help, bring in the priest, bring in the church. I want an exorcism. I want to save my daughter. So to your point about how he has to set up the story and explain who's who and what's going on, I think that's part of the reason, to explore how these people are going to interact with uh, the demon. And if you remember from the end of the book, Father Marin says that the real attack is not on Reagan even. The real attack is a doubt and despair that the demon is sowing around Reagan, which is word for word what I heard from one of the fathers that I uh, that I watched a lecture on. He talked about the demon psychology and how they go about attacking a person or what's their ultimate goal. And the church teaches that the ultimate goal of a demon when he possesses somebody is to bring despair and destruction, to pervert God's creation because they hate God, and to cause people, including the one that's possessed, and by extension those around him, to rebel and curse God. What did he say in his interviews, because I didn't watch any, that he wanted to accomplish? What I just said. Oh, okay. I, I thought it was something different that you were like alluding to. No, it's what I extrapolated from two of them and kind of paraphrased right now. What kind of effect would this have on a non-believer experiencing the world that they don't believe exists? Well, I think that even... Uh, and we can get into this more of the, in the second episode. But Chris doesn't even come to faith mm-hmm. at the end of the second book, or the end of the second part. No, but her keeping Karis's uh, necklace, mm-hmm. that's Blady's way of saying that there's still hope. Because she didn't reject it. In the movie, the original, she gives it back to Father Dyer and says, I don't need it, you keep it. And Reagan never at Father Dyer at the end of the movie. Mm. But Blady's ending, just the way you read the ending, and the movie is that Reagan is affectionate to Father Dyer, and Chris takes the pendant. And Blady said that that's a little bit of hope left, that there's something that has changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think it's interesting how a person without faith, an atheist in this book, treats an exorcism as if it was a required surgery, and then you move on with life. Well, that's how the doctors present it to her, and she takes it on. Right. But it's not unpacked. This is one thing that's not unpacked, is like, how do you engage with the world after you have an encounter of the spirit at that caliber? Like, it affects your worldview. I know that you talk about worldview a lot, mm-hmm. and I don't think Chris's character, we don't have enough time with her after the fact. She packs up her shit and she leaves. Okay. Most people who have something like this occur, from the few that I've talked to, at least have questions after the fact that they wrestle with. 
So well, that is a trilogy, apparently, at least a second what? book that yeah, called Legion. I don't know anything about it. I just found out about that about three days ago, and I tried to buy this on Kindle so I can take quotes from it. Amazon said you might also want to read Legion, also by William Blatty. I'm like Legion, and then it said book two of the Exorcist series. I'm like, well, that's strange. I never knew that. Maybe it's answered there, but I couldn't tell you because I didn't even look it up to for this podcast because I was like. We're talking with the Exorcist. Yeah, 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 that's fair. All right, so all right, so before we get into the themes, normally we talk about world building, or at least you do, because it's a, that's a big thing for you, right? Love world building, big fan. There you go. And we read a bunch of books, Will White specifically and Sanderson specifically, that put in a lot of effort to build the worlds that they tell the stories in. But there's no world building in this book. It happens in DC, and it references literally the real world. This might be a silly question, but uh, respond to that. This is a maybe a first for you or maybe a, a third for you, but this book has no world building whatsoever. I don't only read books with world building. I read philosophy, theology, anthropology. I read memoirs. You, I mean, go back to some of the previous episodes. I'm like, I finished three books this week. What'd you do? And you're like, I hate everything about who you choose to be as a person. So... <laughs> Well, question still stands. There wasn't an accusation like you only read fantasy and manga. As a fiction book, would you say this is one of the few that you read that had no world building at all? It's less common on my reading list to read fiction, things that are based on real events. Mostly when I dive into stuff like that, it's historical context and it's educational rather than slice of life like this happened. So it's more rare for me to dive into something like this than it would be for other things like i read based on your suggestion uh where the crawdads sing and it's like okay that's not a one-for-one real event thing but like it's close enough that the author was put on trial i think you said for Mm -hmm. like murdering the person that she kind of alludes to in the book and it's like oh so this might be a story but it's still real world enough because it happens in louisiana and the swamps and like carolinas it's all the same to me I'm in the, the Midwest. South. It's it's yeah. We don't we don't get out much. No, okay, fair enough. I just thought uh, some sort of response from you because I know how much you love books when it comes to fiction, not philosophy and anthropology. Mm. When it comes to <laughs> smart Alec, I think this is just one of your uh, I call it passions or interests or whatever. So yeah, it it is because world building takes a lot of work. It's a creative. You have to love world building. Or you have to be six books deep and it's justified for what you're trying to do with whatever your series is. Whereas with fiction, I think there's less to talk about with the world because there's no world building. It's like this is just a real event. As much as it allows you to focus more on character, plot, and the development of what takes place in the character arcs. As well as the author's writing and the writing style of how he reveals information in like the narrator and and how he takes place in that because one of the things that i noted and i'm I'm kind of shifting gears here um because i don't have a whole lot of commentary on the world because it's just like well this happened and but i've never been to dc so i didn't know that this was uh you know real places outside of the fact that like any of the book was based on real events is that uh we get this back and forth chapter by chapter where we meet marin we don't know it's Marin, but early on in the book, we get this back and forth between like Chris and what's going on in her life. And then like someone who's in Nineveh doing an excavation, right? Which is like, oh, that's an interesting 
way to slice this uh, this narrative up because you don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Just like I said, some things you have to figure out on your own. It's supposed to be a little bit mysterious. It's supposed to be otherworldly in the sense that you are going beyond the veil of this world. Mm-hmm. Touching something there that you will come back to in the last you know, pages. Yeah. So those are my thoughts on the world. Not super interesting, but I'm glad to know that I've been uh, pigeonholed in your mind that I only read manga and fantasy worlds. And Carl Jung. And Carl Jung. He was referenced in the book. Yeah, he was. I thought that was interesting. Based on real events. Uh, so apparently Karis is Jungian. Based on real Carl Jung's. Moving on to themes. I say, let's do this simple one first. And <laughs> Which one's the simple one? The human desire to confront evil. Oh, okay. So, human desire to confront evil. Talk to me. How did you see this play out in the in the book? The book offers us some presuppositions. One of which is the spirit realm exists. The second of which is witchcraft is evil. And these are just underlying presuppositions that you are, with the way that the story unfolds, like these things are not inevitable. They're, they're just truths. They're truths that take place in the world. And then the third one, just like you said, human desire to confront evil. It's like, well, Chris's daughter is possessed. And so she wants her daughter back. Therefore, she needs to confront evil as just a general state of fact. Um, you can see the same thing in Marin when he is like, no, I know this demon, which is an interesting feud to have because we don't get a whole lot on his backstory. But No, that he just he exercised a boy who had this demon in him 12 years ago. Yeah, I just wanted more. I, I say this all the time. I feel like I just wanted more uh, backstory. Yeah, yeah. So nothing new for me over here. Yeah. Uh, just the same old Jonathan. Manga <laughs> reading, world building... Wanting more, Jonathan. World eater. Um, yeah, so I think it's an interesting presupposition to unpack of like human humans have a desire to confront evil because while it's true, it lives in tension with humans who desire to create evil because we have desires and sometimes our desires require us to assert our will over that of another which is what the demon does for Reagan, right? Yeah. So there's this, how do I want to, I have a dozen thoughts. I'll save some of these for the for the next theme. So yeah, the presupposition of humans desiring to confront evil, like what is it like to unpack that? When do we start to learn that evil is to be confronted? Well, it's when we start being oppressed. That's when we go, something's wrong here. Like, or we Or we view someone else being oppressed. And this doesn't have to just be spiritual, but it can be natural as well. When you see a bully picking on someone as a kid, you go, that's not right. And there's an innate justice, if you will, that's built into the human spirit that goes, that's not right. The ethics of this and the line here gets really blurry when you start thinking about cultures and people groups, though. Because they think about, like, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And while I wouldn't ever posit that I'm an expert on this, like, when you're raised in a culture that views another culture as evil, it's a little harder to unpack the standing up for what's right justice side of this and instead you just confront evil where you're like confronting that which is oppressing you and that which is oppressing you is equal to evil in this uh in this state so those are my thoughts on on human desire confronting evil kind of a little bit of a logic rabbit trail tangled spaghetti mess but what do you think about human desire confront 
confronting emo. Do, do you think that the presupposition is justified, not justified? Do you see examples in the world that human desire to confront evil is missing in some cultures? I think if we're going to be honest, yes, because not all cultures are created equal. Um, and we have not only those innate things, those immaterial things like justice and love and good and evil and those notions, which I don't believe are human constructs or, you know, cultural constructs. Mm-hmm. I think there are cultural manifestations of them, and some cultures view them differently, approach them differently. And in those gray areas, I put no flag in the ground. But where I do put a flag on the ground is not all of those things are equal. Right. Right? And in the book, Human Desire to Confront Evil, or you could say Human Desire to Solve Problems, you you could dice it down and sanitize that a little bit. But I think because the theme of the book is, well, the theme, the plot of the book is a girl being possessed and her mother doing everything that they can to save her little girl Kara's doing everything that he thinks is right for the little girl, and at times his skepticism is infuriating, not just for Chris, but for the reader. Yeah. And his skepticism is not driven necessarily by moral certitude, although he says it does, and I think he believes it does. Sometimes his skepticism is his doubt of God and his goodness and the faith and what he's doing with his life because he left his mother to die, all that nonsense. But he is still driven by a desire to stop whatever the evil is, whether it's natural evil, like this girl's the broken mind, or mm-hmm. a spiritual evil, a demon's attacking her, which, quick side note, parenthetical side quest here, the, the position of the Catholic Church is you exhaust all natural, logical, rational explanations, scientific and medical, before you do an exorcism. Because if it's just a broken mind or a mental issue, they need natural help because the natural chemicals in your brain's not working. So you need natural remedies to get those chemicals working right. But what they say is the demons will attack vulnerable people like that. So even if the, the only problem Reagan has is the catatonic state hysteria because of the divorce, Karis should have at least considered, well, is this vulnerable girl still open to demonic attack? And then you have Marin, the quiet saint, you know, kind of the saintly old guy who is a true believer. He knows what he's getting into. He risks his life and actually dies to save the little girl. He's done an exorcism before, and he just beelines to what he needs to do and just does it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the three different views, I guess I'd say, is an interesting spectrum because you just like you said, there's the non-believer, there's the sort of believer, and then there's the devout believer. And each one of them is struck to confront evil, although differently. Chris just wants to do anything in her power to help her daughter, which is the desperation. And I think that there's desperation in non-believers pretty regularly because there's no there's no narrative of hope available to them because they are ignorant be that by choice or by like lack of knowledge to the evil in front of them or not even to the evil in front of them but rather to the the way that you engage with evil because evil is not meant to be engaged with politely or kindly 
or tiptoed, evil is to be crushed. Hard stop. I've met atheists and listened to plenty of atheists, some of them famous, some of them who've written books that we all know. And the whole notion of finding meaning and meaninglessness, it just it, it's like, okay, you have a PhD in philosophy, you're an astrophysicist, you're doctor of this and a scientist of that. If you were written a journal paper that used the same logic, you would probably be laughed out of the room. Right. So it's interesting that you bring that up. People who don't have, to use your words, a narrative of hope or any sort of understanding that, hey, beyond this veil, whatever happens to me here is the worst that can happen to me if I'm a child of God. If I'm an enemy of God, no matter what happens to me on this side of the veil, it's the best thing that's ever going to happen to me. And to get a little preachy, you go to any funeral, even if it's a celebration of life and everybody's kind of like, yeah, shit happens, people die, and let's go, let's go get a drink in, in Bob's, you know, in Bob's memory. Pour one out for the homies. Even those who truly believe that there's nothing there and just live, be merry, for we're all going to die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Even at those funerals or life celebrations, you could see that there is an absence of hope. And when you look to a life celebration of a believer, of a devout believer specifically, who has made an impact in the world around them, you do see that those who are even sad have a greater aspect of hope. But when confronting evil, you have to have the faith of Marin and the tenacity of Chris. What do you do about Karis? Bring him along. You don't leave Karis behind. Bring him along. Eh, I'll leave him behind. I'd rather take the detective. Detective is a was a, sm- a smarmy little bastard. I liked him. <laughs> I like the whole Columbo act. Like, oh, I'm so sick, and the oh yes, you know how it is. Just one more question, and then yeah. wow, <laughs> yeah, right in the kisser. Well, if that's all that we want to talk about regarding human desire to confront evil, because I think there's more to unpack there, but I I think that it gets, and we'll probably unpack this a little more in the next episode, there's ethical questions of, like, how do you define evil? Some things should be blatantly obvious, like sex trafficking, pedophilia, murder, you know, like, okay, evil, got it. Then there are things that are less obvious that I think that still get classified or should be classified as evil, but are are not. So I, I don't think we need to unpack that here because it's more of an ethics conversation and, and thread of of thought. Yeah, we can bring it up with Zubair too. Mm-hmm. You know, if we if we because you know we can touch upon it next episode, and then when we have your buddy over, well, he's my buddy too. Kind kind of right. We, yeah, I haven't really talked to him in about ten years, but that's that none, happens though. That, not, you know, nonetheless, nothing my, like my, a like nothing like an exorcism to bring you together. Right, nothing like an exorcism to bring three men together. So the next theme that we are going to sort of dance around is um, a new reality addressing the spirit realm. So Chris's character has no context, and this is part of what I I mentioned a minute ago in my answer when I was like, well, people who are without faith in Christ specifically have no hope, and so there's it's partly due to a lack of knowledge or ignorance if you will and the thing is like we're all ignorant about something so ignorance is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself it just means we don't know stuff slav and i don't understand anything about quantum physics we're ignorant about that so it's just like a state of knowledge which is fine but 
when you have an encounter with the spirit realm, it requires a change in your belief system. You don't have to change it. You can continue, and, I've, and I know people who have continued to maintain as if nothing changed and nothing happened when they've encountered a moment with touching the spirit realm, be that through a supernatural healing or a demon oppressing moment or, or time period. And sometimes they're just like, no, I'm going to pretend like thankful that this changed for the positive in their life, but they just chose to bottle up that experience as like, I can't explain it and I don't want to explain it how you want me to explain it. And it's like, well, it's not how I want you to explain it. It's just how it happened. Like, it's just God showed up in your life and it was, and he, and he blessed you and gave you this gift. But like, yeah, you can still choose to not acknowledge him. That's your, that's your free will. Free will is a very important piece of all of life, right? So when you, uh, when you encounter the spirit realm, it's an invitation to address how you look at the world and how you act, but not everyone chooses to do that. I think Chris is a clear example where she like, at the end of the book, she doesn't change. We, we aren't given any moments of her like, oh, now I'm going to ask questions about God. It's like, you, your daughter was just possessed by a demon, which is a, a not normal thing, but you're going to go back to your normal belief system. Okay, cool. Well, Rob Ager, for those who are not in the know, you should be in the know and know that name. Rob Ager of Collative Learning. It's a YouTube channel and a website, mostly YouTube channel, where I get his commentary from. He does film analysis. He has like three or four four videos on The Exorcist. He himself is an agnostic. He believes in God in the only way an agnostic can. There's something out there. There's something beyond this you know, natural veil. But that's all he would admit to. But something that he pointed out about Chris in the movie, and I'm going to comment on the movie and the book almost interchangeably. And I say almost because they're two different products, like I said earlier. Mm -hmm. But the movie sometimes visually portrays exactly what Blatty was trying to write about in the book about Chris specifically for this point. And religion is all around Chris. Like Sharon is religious. She invites priests to her house party. She invites a psychic to her house party. She lives next to the church. She can see the chapel from Reagan's window, I think, right? Sees the priest talking and walking around. She's making a film on Georgetown campus where there's all you know all sorts of religious things going on. In the movie, she wears an amulet. I forget from which culture, but she wears an amulet meant to ward off evil spirits. As she's walking by, there's a scene in the movie where she's walking by in her neighborhood, passing the church, like I said. She's seeing the priest do priestly things. And then on her way home, she sees a bunch of kids dressed in Halloween costumes. So in this scene, religion is all around her, and she's either oblivious to it or she ignores it, and sometimes she is hostile towards it. But at the same time, in a weird, unconscious way, she emulates religious rites, like wearing that amulet. Yeah. Or when her daughter is being hypnotized or screaming obscenities, she, oftentimes she would uh, clasp her hands like she's praying. And this is something Ager points out specifically, so I want to give him the credit. And it's this tension, right, that you just described with the, your friend who has confronted something supernatural, and in his, in his context it was positive, but it's like, meh, uh, yeah, whatever. Either it's willful, like I'm pushing this away because 
forget about it. I don't want to think about it or deal with it. Or it's like, well, that's kind of cool. Back to acting. Right. They bottle the category of the moment up and then just kind of like displace it from their mind where it's like, I don't have to engage with the the questions here if I don't think about it. Oh, that's the human condition, man. We're we're functioning doubters and atheists at times because we will we will we assent to you know what the church teaches or we assent to Christ's word or we assent to certain dogmas and doctrines and we live life based on those things, but you'll find slivers of time in your life, and sometimes they're a couple of minutes, sometimes they're a couple of years, where you've actually lived doing the rights or performing the rights. But mm-hmm. functionally, you live like Chris, <laughs> oblivious to the things around you. Yeah. I think the reason that we push these questions off, too, is nobody likes to give up their free will. And in Christianity, you're choosing to give up your free will by actively utilizing it no longer for yourself, which means that you have to adhere to, just like you said, rights, but more so like the law of love and the execution of what that looks like. I was listening to... One of the priests who was sharing like a conflict he had within himself because he really didn't like people. He was a bit of a misanthrope. And he goes, how can I love somebody that I despise or I find morally, intellectually inferior to me? Either he came to this on his own through like prayer and meditation or somebody told him this. He goes, hey, man, love is not a feeling. Love is an action. You act with love towards people that you find morally and intellectually inferior you'd still treat them with dignity and thus fulfill the requirement. Your point about free will, right? There's, I would disagree with you and say you don't give up your free will. You always have your free will, and we talked about free will in previous episodes. As creatures, we can exercise free will, but there's also so much of it we have. You can't do anything you ever wanted, but within the constraints, both spiritual and natural, You can act on your desires, whether it be to rebel against God, to go towards God, to love your neighbor, to hate your neighbor, to participate in evil things. As far as your free will is constrained by that which is around you, both spiritual and natural, you you always have that free will. Give up was the wrong way to say it. That's fair. Yeah, as a believer, now your free will is set on... The creator who gave it gave it to you, right? It's you, submitted, not yeah. given up. Yeah, yeah. So it's still an act of will to submit to the hierarchy that is that God holds. Anyway, that is we're going to wrap up here. That is the episode. Let us know in the comments what you thought about The Exorcist. Have you read it? Have you not read it? Have you had the audiobook playing and then it got to one of the crass parts and your friend was getting in your car? No? Just me? All right. Well, let us know in the comments. So thanks for joining us. And one question for you before we go is, what is a spooky ghost story that you really enjoyed and we should read? Let us know. Right, good people. For right now, where you can leave those suggestions is Spotify, because that's the platform that allows you to comment on each individual episode. And uh, there's a few polls out there that are expiring soon that also have to deal with suggestions and books we should read we want to hear from you thank you for joining us don't forget to subscribe don't forget to share and I think that's it carry on little adventurers carry on
we got to work on that outro. <laughs> no, it's great, and it's jarring form. <laughs>